So if I put together everything you guys just said, why not just give us what you think net interest income will be in in 2024 so we're not all guessing and maybe your stock won't trade down to $7? Like, John, why don't you just tell us what you – you might be wrong because you said – basically, we did. We just took earning assets. We applied your margin. And we go, said, okay, this is where NII is. Fall it out with the other midpoints, and it's down substantial. You're saying it's not that, but – you know, you just cut the dividend. Maybe you do your shareholders a favor and tell us, what do you think NII will be in 2024? You know better than we do because you know what was impacted fully in the quarter. There's certain actions you took which didn't fully uh, impact the quarter. So why not just That's give right. us the color? So why not just give yeah. us the number and make life easy? Yeah, we, absolutely. Um, you know, when you we looked too, at the. Way, when you're stuck at a 25 year low. I can't imagine you're happy with this. So unless you want, you know. I don't know why you wouldn't take this opportunity to level set expectations. Look, Stephen, we're very focused by that the market will truly understand the strategy going forward. We're in a category one full bank strategy. We were well positioned uh, in closing the flag. This is Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. It's Monday, February 5th. So the clip you just heard is from New York Community Bank's earnings call on Wednesday morning. Susanna, you were on that call. What were we listening to? Yeah, so that's Stephen Alexopoulos. He's an analyst at J.P. Morgan, and he's asking New York Community Bank executives why they won't offer projections for profitability through 2024. And specifically, he's asking about net interest income. Which are typical for forecasts, but particularly important on this earnings call because NYCB, as Stephen mentions at the top, had a really rough quarter in the last three months of 2024. Right, yeah, it reported a loss. It axed its dividend by 70%. It stuffed away $550 million for expected losses in its commercial real estate portfolio. And its shares dropped over 50% at one point pre-market, which is the lowest in over two decades, as Stephen alluded to. And Stephen's getting a little spicy at this point because he already asked this question about net interest income, and he didn't really get an answer. So I want to follow up on net interest income. So you guys gave us most of the components for the 2024 guide without net interest income. You'll probably notice your stock trading at seven bucks pre-market, which I think is a 20 or 25 year low. And it's because all of us are running the math on earning asset levels, applying the NIM guide, and you get earnings that are down like 40% if you do that. Is that what you guys are guiding to for 2024? Basically, he's saying he did the math and it looks like earnings, which already fell quarter over quarter in 2023, are going to drop significantly in 2024. So he wants to know what they're looking at for NII, which is the difference between interest a bank makes on loans and what it loses on deposits. So New York Community Bank did release a clearer picture of what it's forecasting for NII after that call finished. And to be fair, Alexopoulos, Stephen, he maintained an overweight rating for New York Community Bank, meaning you know he thinks it's still a buy. But the quibble over NII is important. Interest rates are high, so all lenders are paying more on deposits, and some commercial real estate loans are in trouble, and that jeopardizes the revenue banks are pooling from that debt. It could create an imbalance. Which is also what we saw at First Republic Bank after its collapse last year. And that's what we're digging into on today's episode. What risk do commercial real estate loans pose to regional lenders? We'll get into all of this in a few minutes. But first, let's go over last week's news.
Keller Williams has settled one of the now many antitrust lawsuits over broker commissions. The brokerage agreed to pay $70 million, and if the settlement is approved, the brokerage would be protected from any other copycat suits that come up across the country. We've done an episode on this. There's so many suits, though. So is this the Sitzer Burnett case, right? Yes. So the original, I guess we can call it. The suit went to trial last year. Keller Williams, National Association of Realtors and Berkshire Hathaway Home Services were the three defendants in the case. Anywhere Real Estate and Remax had settled out before trial. And a reminder in that case, the jury found the three defendants liable for $1.8 billion in damages. Okay, so it looks like there will be two defendants left and a number of copycat lawsuits have already been filed, right? We know that. Yes, in New York, Illinois and California, and they follow similar sorts of complaints. So it makes sense that Keller Williams wants protection across the board. And one of our reporters, Sheridan Wall in New York, wrote about NAR for the cover story of our magazine this month. And she really got into the history of NAR and whether it has the wherewithal to survive all of this drama, the lawsuits, the leadership shakeups, et cetera. It's a great read. And I actually didn't realize that NAR dates back to 1908. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So they've lasted this long and they're facing... So many challenges, basically. Yeah, the word existential was definitely in that story. Okay, speaking of existential, onto office and our distress event for the week. So the value of SL Green and RXR Realty's Worldwide Plaza in New York has been cut by $500 million. And Cranes had that story. Oof. So how much is it worth now? So $1.2 billion now, down from $1.7 billion last time it was appraised. It's still $600 per square foot, but, you know, it's a notable cut. There have been some office towers in L.A. that have traded for $150 a square foot. So $600 a foot in L.A. seems absolutely crazy to me. Obviously, this is in New York, a different market, but there are definitely much, much lower valuations for office. And last, we can chat about our own version of the Tinder swindler story. Suzanne, I know you haven't seen the Netflix doc, but for those who have, you'll know what we're talking about. Right. So can you enlighten me? I'll keep it short. But basically, there is a real estate agent in New Jersey. She started dating this other real estate agent last April. And according to court records, her boyfriend allegedly ran off with more than $70,000 of her money. She transferred that $70,000 to him over time, paying for Airbnbs and throwing parties for him and events and even at one point tickets to see Drake. And there are all these text messages that show that he allegedly promised to pay her back, but no luck there. Oh, man, that's wild. Great fodder for a true crime episode. Honestly, we could dig into that more. Um, But let's leave the news there and get into the meat of today's episode, which is the risk profile of regional banks. So to put the regional bank buzz in perspective, I want to start with the letters the SEC sent to four regional banks. Those were sent in late January, which was before New York Community Bank reported earnings. Right. So the Wall Street Journal had that story. The SEC wrote to Alaris Financial, based in North Dakota, Midpen Bank, and Ohio Valley Bank. Based where you think they are. And Main Street Bank, which is in Virginia. And in each of the letters, the SEC is asking these banks about their commercial real estate exposure, given the failures of Signature Bank, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic last year. 
So there are two things at play here. One is the health of CRE loans, and the other is the bank failures that have already happened. When it comes to the first, we, and you listeners, know that some commercial real estate assets are in trouble. Office buildings in particular are a huge pain point given low leasing and the persistence of remote work. Layoffs haven't helped either. We know this story. And we know that the tipping point for office, this wave of foreclosures and defaults that some are expecting, isn't quite here yet. And that's because office leases and loans generally have long terms. Some run for decades. So there's been some runway. Right. Last year, the SEC encouraged banks and lenders generally to give even more leeway to troubled borrowers. They sort of pushed lenders to go with workouts and come to amicable solutions rather than just foreclose en masse. But the SEC's latest letters signal it's worried about how long regional banks can stave off distress. And it's also still got last year's bank collapses on its mind. Here's Ken Chin. He heads the banking and finance group at the New York law firm Kramer Levin. Uh, the SEC probably took some heat for uh, not doing their job because I think uh, investors thought everything was, you know, everything was well at those banks for uh, a longer period of time than when they weren't well. So these letters are the SEC doing its due diligence, getting banks to offer up some more granular data on what's going on with their commercial real estate debt. Specifically in their 10Ks, which come out two to three months after the fiscal year ends. So pretty soon. All of the banks said, sure, we'll do that. But there were some key exceptions. Ohio Valley Bank, interestingly, made an affirmative statement that it would not provide loan-to-value ratios or occupancy rates because they said that they didn't keep, you know, their 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 data wasn't to that detail. What they could provide wouldn't be meaningful. Midpen and Alluris both excluded those categories from what they said that they would comply with. They were not going to give it to you. They just said, well, we're going to give you you know, the breakdown, we're going to give you the uh, borrower statistics, geographic concentrations, but they did not say we're, we're going to give you the uh, LTV ratios. Loan-to-value ratios, as a reminder, compare a loan amount to how much the property is worth. It can be a way to measure risk. So the higher the ratio, the less equity a borrower has put into a deal. And as values decline, a bank may reassess its loans and see that LTVs have risen. Then loans can be underwater. Here's an example. So say an office owner scores a $70 million loan at a 70% LTV. The property was worth $100 million. But now a couple of tenants have left and the bank has asked for a new appraisal. The property is now worth $65 million, about 35% less. Well, boom, it's now worth less than the debt and the lender takes a loss. So as Ken touched on ahead of last year's bank failures, regulators, in retrospect, they acknowledged that they hadn't taken a close enough look at what was going on. The FDIC even admitted it didn't do a timely enough review of Signature Bank. And without that oversight, banks can do their bit to conceal some of their bad debts on their balance sheet. It is possible for banks to, I don't want to say hide things, but maybe stretch out some of these things and, and stretch the truth a little bit. That's Nate Tobik. He is the CEO of Complete Bank Data. Let's just say a, a landlord calls and says, hey, I'm having a lot of problems. I'm not going to be able to pay this thing back, but I'm I'm hoping to unload it. Can you work with me and we could we could try and figure something out? So the bank, which is not receiving interest payments in this hypothetical, says, yes, we'll restructure it and get it current. So the longest I've heard is... Um, 
uh, one bank was able to, to stretch it um, well past a year, and no one had ever made a payment on anything. Sell it, and they finally forced them to sell, and they were able to, to recoup the, the money on it, but they didn't receive any payments. But it was still current, and they didn't have to, to report that as, as you know, criticized or past due or anything. Pretend and extend, kick the can, stay alive till 25, pick your metaphor there. But when banks are taking this approach for more and more loans, it becomes a problem. If they're not receiving interest for an extended period of time, that's a revenue hit. And if they're not reporting those problems? I don't think investors or regulators like that idea. And my sense is that most investors aren't close enough to bank operations to actually realize that this might be happening. That is unless, of course, the bank gives them a heads up. During the fourth quarter, we significantly built our reserves to address office sector weakness and an expected increase in criticized loans due to repricing risk in the multifamily portfolio. So NYCB reported bad results. Let's get into the contagion that happened. So the market did react. The KBW Regional Banking Index dropped 1.4% on Wednesday when NYCB reported earnings. That may sound like a pretty small amount, but it was the biggest single-day drop since Signature Bank collapsed last March. And then as of Friday, early afternoon when we're recording this, the index is down about 3.6% from market close on Tuesday. So a contagion drop there. We also saw Valley National Bank, a tri-state lender to multifamily, fall as much as 18% between market close on Tuesday and early Thursday. By Friday afternoon, it had recovered a little bit of that loss. But the question when it comes to contagion is, is it warranted? Does one bank's troubles in the CRE space mean that every other regional bank with CRE exposure is facing a similar risk? You know, when you look at it from a real estate analyst perspective, you know, and a researcher's perspective, there's kind of a silo of the risk in commercial real estate. That's Kevin Fagan, Senior Director of Moody's Analytics Commercial Real Estate Group. And the silo of risk he's referring to includes office, but critically, it also includes rent-stabilized multifamily in New York City. After the collapse of Signature Bank, New York Community Bank became the biggest lender to rent-stabilized multifamily. And notably, it did not pick up Signature's rent-stabilized loans when it acquired the failed bank's deposits and other business loans. Industry observers said the debt was toxic. And that's because of legislation passed in 2019 that effectively capped revenues and rent-stabilized buildings. We've been down that road before, explainer-wise, so I'll leave the rent-stabilized talk there for now. So in a nutshell, part of NYCB's problems, loans, are unique to the bank. Other regional lenders don't have that same rent stabilization issue, but they do have office debt, a lot of which is likely distressed. So when you just look at it like that, it feels like it can be manageable because lenders can you know, do a lot of extensions and workouts and they can kind of smooth things out. But that's one perspective. The other perspective is the market. Uh, the, the public market. So you can see these kinds of reactions and that can kind of drive the bus. And there's guaranteed, there's a lot of, for sure, there's a lot of uncertainty around office, you know, that people are reacting to that uncertainty, but it's mostly driven by perception right now. And the reality is, is we just haven't seen the losses, you know, and mass materialize. Not to say that there's not more coming this year. And so when we see those headlines come further this year, you know, the perception probably will get worse as the year goes on. So all of that is important. There is trouble in office, and some banks are already recognizing that. 
Tokyo-based Alzara Bank said losses from its U.S. office loan portfolio would likely cause a net annual loss, set to be its first in 15 years. Deutsche Bank has also warned investors about the risk of potential losses stemming from its exposure to U.S. real estate. So while there are unique circumstances to NYCB in regards to their rent-stabilized loans, office seems to be what will affect banks generally. And there are other concerns at regional banks. They also made a lot of loans when rates were low because demand was high. And that's causing issues with their net interest income, net interest margin, which in part was what the JP Morgan analyst was talking about. Here's Nate again. If you think about when you lend out money at, at say, 3% and you're paying 0% in your deposits, you have that net spread of 3%. That's perfectly fine. But what's happened is their depositors are are demanding interest because they want some money of return on their deposits. And so on deposits, now you're paying 1%, 2%. Well, if you're paying 2% and you're receiving 3%, that spread on those old loans is getting smaller and smaller, and their expenses haven't changed. So what you have is you have your net interest margin is compressed, and now you're you're earning that much less. You're losing money. And then you have sort of this commercial real estate storm cloud looming, which is as these leases are renegotiated, are we going to start to see defaults? And um, I think the answer is probably. And then there's one more pain point. A lot of these banks, they bought a lot of mortgage-backed securities. They bought mortgage pools. They bought treasury bonds. They bought these things when interest rates were at historic lows. So the price of a bond and its rate is it's an inverse correlation. So as rates have, have risen, the value of those have fallen. And so banks have these unrealized losses on their balance sheet. And because of that, you know, they're, they're capital constraints. So if you add those three components together and you have this loss, suddenly it's we need to cut the dividend because we need to make sure money doesn't leave. You know, there's there's no wiggle room. So that's the wide angled look. But if we dial back in on office, which is, again, the problem child, the question really is, when do these loans come due? When do regional banks, which have less wiggle room to write off losses than the big banks do, when will those community banks be forced to take the L? Here's Kevin. Basically, you know, we're kind of looking at a situation where the regulators and the banks themselves are both trying to take a hard look at their portfolios and really differentiate what's going to be trouble, what's not trouble, you know, maturing loans that are coming up. A lot of them got pushed from 2023, almost 100 billion of them in the bank space. Those maturities got moved from 2023 to 2024. Part of that is banks don't really know how to value those buildings. We're slowly getting a taste of how far office valuations have fallen. The SL Green property we mentioned earlier is one recent example. But take L.A., where there have been so few office trades, it's really hard to determine comparables. Also, when these loans do come due, owners are going to have to refinance at a higher rate. So the hope is when extending the debt, you could maybe refinance in a lower rate environment. And maybe that could be a saving grace. But once again, there's a caveat. The Fed's guidance on when it will cut rates, by how much and how rapidly, that's still a huge question mark really looming over commercial real estate right now. Last week, the Fed held rates steady at its January meeting, and Fed Chair Jay Powell said a rate cut was not a near-term likelihood. Um, Based on the meeting today, I would tell you that 
I don't think it's likely that the committee will reach a level of confidence by the time of the March meeting to identify March as the time to do that. So not a ton of hope for significant rate cuts this year, I guess we could say. For regional lenders with exposure to troubled CRE loans, that will likely mean facing the music on some of that debt. Yeah, I mean, they're basically going to do, you know, a present value analysis. So um, they're going to say, okay, if we push this further, are we just really, are we increasing the loss that we're eventually going to take? And should we just take it right now? Like That's the basic analysis that's happening right now. And in a lot of cases, you know, and we and we are not alone in this, but we forecast there to be a recovery in the next couple of start, starting to happen for office in the next couple of years. You know, so if you can maybe not liquidate into a market like this where there's very low liquidity, uh, really shaky ability to kind of get tenants in right now, a lot of uncertainty around how office is going to be in the future. You know, if you can maybe kind of let the dust settle and 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 and, and see what it's going to be on the other side on an asset where you feel that there is some, you have some level of comfort, yes, you'll definitely do that. Uh, but like I said, you're going to see some assets where you just don't believe in it. You got too much lease rollover coming up. Uh, it doesn't seem to have any prospective tenants. You're going to ask your borrower, do you have any LOIs for that space that's empty right now? And if they don't, you're not going to feel really comfortable about the recoverability there. And you might just go ahead and liquidate now. Um, so it's going to be a mixed bag, but we're definitely going to see more losses coming into 2024 where those extensions don't happen again. Uh, but a lot of them will happen. But it's a very, very, very surgical analysis right now. And for banks that are hoping for a rate cut to save them on deposit costs, whatever the Fed has in store this year doesn't look to be big help in the short term. They're going to lower rates a quarter point, probably. A quarter point isn't the difference between a profitability and loss. That's They need three percentage points. Deconstruct as every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have a guest or idea you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach us at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking to Strip Mole Guy. Tune in then.